This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling <clears throat> the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and if you are a first-time listener, we're especially glad that you've come and joined us here at 88.7, or you may be live-streaming through our app or on a computer at wagp.net. As Rick just mentioned, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a particular issue in your life or ministry, and you're looking for biblical counsel or trying to reconcile a passage of Scripture in terms of its meaning and application. So if we can be of help by God's grace, all you need to do, again, the 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859, or you can call us toll-free at 877, the call letters, WAGP 980. Either of those will get you through. You know, questions come in from all over the country. It's hard to answer them all when people (laughs) submit them. I think four or five uh, came in today already, but eventually we will get to your question, and by God's grace, answer it, and you'll be emailed. But we do give preference to live callers who either go on the air or dictate, as we sense, well, maybe there's a little more urgency there. And so, again, the 843 exchange is 525-1859. With that said, Walter, let's go ahead and get started. All right, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Neil out of Roundo, South Carolina. He writes... Pastor Carl, my wife and I both have Freemasonry in our family. It was suggested that we go through the renunciation prayer that can be found at the Christian Healing Ministry website, which he has provided there for you. Some of the things brought up in the renunciation prayer were very disturbing to me, particularly the section that renounced the oaths taken at the 33rd degree stating that Lucifer is God. The renunciation prayer states that at the end that these Freemasonry prayers are taken from unmasking Freemasonry, removing the hoodwink by Selwyn Stephen. Can you please speak to the validity of these claims in the renunciation prayer? Well, uh, I'm not sure what your exposure is to historical Pentecostalism, but that's basically the theology you've been handed over, and there's a lot of uh, confusion, sadly, in it. And it makes people nervous, and nervousness builds fear, and fear builds an appetite for answers, and it fills seats, but it's not always accurate. Uh, just like um, other forms of Pentecostalism, whether it's you know prosperity theology, God's will is for you to be healthy and wealthy. And of course, not all Pentecostals teach that, but as a general rule, sadly, that's where the church is today. Let me just comment first on Freemasonry. Um, most people who are in uh, the Masonic Lodge or something, or at the early degrees, they have no idea what Freemasonry is about, and many die having no idea what Freemasonry is about. Uh, they just think it is a service organization, and some men get together, and they serve, and they help people, and thank God for that. Thank God for their Shriner Hospitals and some of the work that they've done there where they've provided opportunities for children with various abnormalities to be able to go and to get free health care. 
Uh, and so they've done a lot of good things, and that's not bad at all. But, of course, Freemasonry in and of itself is a religion, and it is a religion of sorts that goes against the heart of Scripture. I met a Freemason once, and he actually showed me the Freemason study Bible. I wish I had a copy. I don't. If I could put my hands on one, I would get it. But it was really interesting to read some of the study notes that were in it, and notes that definitively taught salvation by works, the denial of the deity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so sometimes there are people who have been in the Masonic Lodge and at the... Um, at the funeral, you know, they wear their little dirty aprons and they say their little schmeal, which is, again, totally wrong, somehow like they can get their brother into the heavenly lodge above. So it, at heart, it's not good, but do most Freemasons understand that? No. In fact, it was during the 1980s, I remember when it happened, the Southern Baptist Convention became an issue and they realized they had over 700,000 men who are members of Southern Baptist churches that were in Freemasonry, so they launched their own study. Some others had been done by one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, uh, another by John Ankelberg, but Norman Geisler probably did the most thorough and the best study. So if you type in Norman Geisler, G-E-I-S-L-E-R, he died just a few years ago in his 90s. He was a great biblical apologist and scholar and did a lot of great work and would help you to understand what they actually believe. But you're thinking, okay, uh, we've got Freemasonry in our background, and what do we do? And you're referencing, really, Exodus chapter 20. It says, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. And so today there's a trend, I think, in the church to sometimes blame just about any sin problem you can think of on some generational curse. And that's not the context of this text. The generational curse that he's speaking of concerns those who hate me, meaning in the context, he's dealing with the commandment, you shall not have an idol. And an idol is anything that you fear, serve, or worship more than God. And there are many forms of idolatry. Paul can even say greed is idolatry. Sexual immorality is a form of idolatry. But then there is, of course, literal idolatry where someone creates some object that they worship at, and approximately a third of the world's population still literally, physically actually does that. Lay all that aside, he's speaking of those who the next generation follow their parents' behavior. And again, these are those who hate me, but this must be balanced. I turn to Ezekiel 18 and verse 20. It says there, the person whose sins will die, the son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So ultimately you're responsible for your own sin. And then of course he underscores in the next verse here, I was reading Exodus 20, and by the way, two key passages, when you think of the 10 commandments, think of Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, that's where the Decalogue is found. But then he goes on, but God shows loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and, and keep my commandment. And so what's the solution to some kind of problem to have some formal uh, renunciation of Freemasonry? Well, only to the sense that you recognize it's not a good thing for a Christian to be involved in. And even those who are involved in innocence and don't really know what Freemasonry involves, the higher you go, it does t 
totally renounce basic Christian doctrine. And the Bible warns us to separate from those who teach false doctrine. So if someone's listening to me today and they're involved in Freemasonry, you ought to get out because you're a part of an organization that's ultimately antithetical to Scripture. But do I have to fear and go through some you know, formal renouncing? Of course not. Romans 8.1 says, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. So the solution to any kind of um, sin that maybe we have adopted through our parents' leadership and example is repentance and faith in Christ. And if I've done that, I don't have to break some chain that's you know tied around my neck because, again, the focus is on those who practice by their parents' example, and they continue in that hatred of God, hatred in the sense that they're not obeying him. If you love me, you keep my commandments. And so sometimes we think, well, I don't have this burning, you know, demonic hatred towards God. Hatred in the Bible is described as a choice. Um, The one, unless you hate your father and mother, you can't be my disciple. He wasn't speaking of literal emotional hate, but there's a choice where you must love Christ greater than father and mother, as the parallel text teaches in Matthew's gospel. Anyway, fair question, good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning, our next question, Pastor Carl's Five questions in total. It comes from Lynn out of Beaufort, South Carolina. She says, when Legion went into the pigs, the pigs were drowned, but what happened to the demons? The second part, what exactly is the abyss and where is Tartarus now? Third, when the Messiah reigns during the millennium, will that be on the new earth? Fourth, when does the new heaven and new earth come down to heaven? And lastly, when does the world end in fire? Thank you. All right. So some of these are related, so I don't mind taking them together. Generally, we ask people to restrict their questions to one because we have so many questions that come in and we want to be able to answer as many as possible. Leave it there so I can see it. Uh, When Legion went into the pigs, the pigs were drowned. What happened to the demons? Well, you know, it's interesting because, again, they're Gersey or Kersey, as it's called, you go to Kersey National Park, and occasionally we'll go over to that side of the Sea of Galilee, and it is a Class A spot. There's uh, places where you can see some ancient tombs and caves where uh, these two demoniacs lived, and there's a steep banking. Now at the bottom, it's cut by a road, but if, but at one time there was a steep banking that went right down into the sea where those two thousand pigs could have been drowned. And of course, um, here are these demons who don't want to be sent to the abyss. The abyss is a place of demonic activity where demons go who have indeed been uh, legislated to that spot by the Lord because of the heinousness of their sin. It's different from Tartarus. You mentioned Tartarus in one of your questions. Tartarus is a place that 2 Peter mentions where the demons there are in, in eternal chains. In other words, they are there and they are never going to get out. And Tartarus, like Hades and other places, eventually all become part of the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the future hell. Today, Hades, unrighteous Hades, Sheol, unrighteous Sheol, different terms, is the place where lost people go. But in Revelation 20, it says that death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. So right now, the devil's not in, quote unquote, hell. Uh, he's never been there. There are no demons there poking people with pitchforks. Uh, but 
there is a place called the abyss where demons have committed such a heinous act that their ability to wage war is limited for a period of time. So if you're with me in my series on the Revelation, and I teach, taught every verse through Revelation, by God's grace, 72 hours of teaching on the Revelation, and we spoke in depth about the abyss. Uh, it, it means a bottomless pit, so, so to speak. Uh, but since it is a um, proper place, the New American Standard and the New King James render it the abyss. But if you translate the meaning, it means bottomless pit or a place without a bottom or so forth. And so those demons that are in the abyss have not the ability to wage war. And so we are told in places like Ephesians 6 uh, that we wage war not simply against people, flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and evil forces that are at work in the heavenly realm. You see that illustrated in Daniel chapter 10 where you have demonic activity over various nations of the world. And so there is an invisible realm that we do not see that is very, very much active. And so those demons didn't want to go to the abyss. And for whatever reason, as heinous as their crime was in inhabiting uh, these demoniacs, uh, the Lord allowed them to go into the pigs. The pigs were drowned. Where did the demons go? Well, Jesus taught in another passage in Matthew chapter 12. And I preached on this when I dealt with Job since Job is, excuse me, when I preached on Jonah, since Jonah is highlighted, now Job, my mind was going there as well because Job has this encounter with uh, the demonic activity, namely with the Bnei Elohim, that is the sons of God, Satan and his demons, so to speak. Oh, but uh, when I preached Jonah, Jesus uses Jonah as an illustration of, of his own death, burial, and the resurrection. And so uh, the Lord told some unbelieving Pharisees who had rejected the first witness of God the Father through the scriptures and had rejected the second witness through God the Son in terms of his proclamation that he was indeed the Son of God. There was only one witness left, and that was the witness of God the Holy Spirit who was doing miracles through the Lord Jesus, and they were about to commit an unforgivable sin because once you've rejected the witness of the Father and the Son, there's no one else who can witness to your heart. And when that happens, you are guilty of an eternal sin. And so Jesus speaks in that whole context about demons who, when they are exercised, uh, they seek a waterless and arid place. And interestingly, there's a, uh, a book that basically gives commentary on the uh on the Tanakh and specifically on the Torah. And that oral tradition was codified around 200 AD. And, and interestingly, um, they mentioned that that's the place the demons go. So they were actually correct because Jesus confirmed that. But that had been an ancient teaching amongst the Jews that when a demon is removed from a person, and there were Jewish exorcists in Jesus' day and before, uh, believers some who are not believers, and sometimes a demon will respond to an unbeliever for other reasons. That's a whole other message in itself, but they would go to an arid place. So they go to an arid place. We're not told why they like arid places. We're just told that's where they go until they ultimately are given permission and see opportunity because they too are structured and organized just like holy angels are. There's rank and file and so forth and until they go to another place. So Broad terms, Tartarus, a place of 
eternal chains. Those demons will never be released. And we know there's a group of angels, fallen angels who are in Tartarus. They committed a heinous sin where they left their proper abode and they did an awful thing during the time of Noah's day where the Bnei Elohim, uh, these sons of God, uh, cohabitated with the daughters of men and the offspring was wicked. And it was part of the reason for the flood that followed. Uh, Those angels will never be released. A second category are those who are in the abyss. They will be released. In fact, during the time of the great tribulation period, uh, they are released to reach havoc upon the earth uh, for a period of months. And then they go back into the abyss. Satan, during the millennial reign of the Messiah, is held up in the abyss. And at the end of the thousand years, he's released. When Jesus comes back, does he reign? What was the question there on the new earth? No, he reigns on a rejuvenated earth. And so during the millennial reign, it's called the time of the restoration. The curse, so to speak, is lifted off the planet. And there are passages that speak to this, where the lion lays down with the lamb, where the baby plays next to the cobra's nest. Uh, The lamb lays down next to the wolf as well. Both images are given, though you hear only one in Handel's Messiah. And so it's a time of um, restoration where the harmony that God had intended between man and the animal realm will be restored. Men will live potentially during the entire thousand years, and those who enter in their natural bodies will be able to have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and so on. And uh, so that's different from at the end of the millennial, um, that earth is destroyed. And we know that from a number of passages, but uh, Peter speaks of the day of the Lord that will come like a thief in the night at which, uh, or in which, which is it? It's an important little pronoun. And if you don't interpret it properly, you can easily get confused as to what God's intention is. But Peter is dealing with those who are mocking the fact that Jesus is coming back. And he says, but the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord is not a 24-hour day. There's a dark side to it. There's a bright side to it. Most people only think of the dark side of the day of the Lord. We call it the great tribulation. And so the tribulation period happens after the rapture, not immediately. There's a space of time, as I, again, covered recently in a series I did called God's Prophetic Schedule. There is a space of time. Um, but once uh, the church is, is, is taken out, shortly thereafter, the day of the Lord begins, and it mimics a biblical day. It gets darker and darker and darker, and then it gets bright, and then it gets dark again. So during the dark side, we call it the Great Tribulation. At the second coming, it gets bright for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, when Satan is released, and the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of tribulation saints who did not respond in faith uh, are are following Satan's cue. And again, they have the third and great battle that's described in Scripture. So at the end of that, so he says, for the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which... So not at which, but in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. So he's saying in this time frame. So he's not saying at the second coming and the amillennials wants the earth destroyed and we just all go to heaven. And no, it's during this time frame of the day of the Lord that it is destroyed. And Revelation 20 gives us specifically when in that time frame it happens 
And so when you read Revelation 20, 11 to 15, you have the great white throne judgment. And it's interesting because, again, he makes this statement, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. So earth and heaven is is gone at this point. The, the physical heavenly realms that you look up at night, it's gone. The earth and the planetary creation is gone. And somewhere in outer space, uh, we might say, there's this great white throne judgment where the lost of all time are arraigned. And then when that is completed, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Why? For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. There are some who teach, and I think they're wrong, that, uh, that God is just going to fix up the planet during the millennial reign, and that's what we're going to go into. No, he's going to actually destroy it. He's going to melt it with intense heat. Second Peter says he's going to create a brand new heaven and earth in which righteousness dwells. So we are on a rejuvenated earth during the millennial reign, during the uh, future, eternity future, We'll be on a new earth. You say, wait a minute, I thought we'd go to heaven. Well, you do. You go to the new Jerusalem, the Father's house, many terms given to it. Um, but that new Jerusalem literally physically comes down out of heaven. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride. And what does it do? It sits on the earth. So what, where your loved ones are today, that's just the capital city, so to speak, of a whole new earth that it will sit on. So it's absolutely astounding. If you want to study this in detail, I just did a 31-week series called God's Prophetic Schedule, and I deal with every question that she asked here. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl. We're going live to the phone lines. Good morning, caller. You're live with Pastor Carl. What is your question? Go ahead. We're, we're listening. All right, we can't hear you. You may want to call back um, for whatever reason. Make sure, too, if you're listening and you call, to turn your radio down because you'll get very confused. Uh, just consider it like a phone call to a friend. There's just 25,000 people listening in. Go ahead. Go to the right. next so this, question. This is a live dictation. Pastor Carl comes from Ophelia out of Savannah, Georgia. She says, please explain the rapture. I am a Christian and have been baptized. Does the rapture occur before or after the tribulation? It happens before the tribulation. Um, and again, I just gave an example. It, I didn't explain it, but I explained how the fact that during the thousand-year reign, those who enter the tribulation in their natural bodies are able to have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. The earth is repopulated. And that's the only explanation um, for a pre-tribulational rapture. Think of this. Now, everyone in a true sense believes in a rapture. The word raptura comes from a Latin word, rapto, and it comes into English as rapture, though the word rapture is never found in the Bible as such. But what is found is we shall all be caught up. And so you could speak of the great harpazo will all be caught up. And in the Latin translation of the Bible, is translated such that we get our word rapture. So does the word rapture appear in the Bible? Yes, in the Latin Bible that was used by the church for a thousand years. I don't care what you call it, the great catching up. Every believer embraces that. Then in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be changed. We're, this mortal will put on immortality. This perishable will put on the imperishable. 
uh, that's when we get resurrection bodies. And when we do, we'll become like Jesus. And in heaven, in our resurrection bodies, Jesus made it clear that we neither marry nor are given in marriage. We don't have children. We don't have the typical marriage relationships. There's no procreation in the uh, resurrection body. So how do you have children during the millennial reign of Christ? Well, you either throw away the whole millennial reign of Christ, and therein lies typical Presbyterians, not always. Uh, There have been some great Presbyterian preachers who believed in a literal thousand-year reign, but generally speaking, those are the Presbyterian slash Reformed faith believe the next event is the second coming. We just all go to heaven. Uh, God's not going to literally rule on the earth. The prayer that we've been praying since Christ taught us your will be done on earth as it is in heaven won't actually literally be fulfilled. Uh, And so everything is spiritualized. The book of Revelation is spiritualized because they recognize that you can't take the simple reading at face value and have at the end of the thousand years this great rebellion, because if we're in resurrection bodies, you can't sin. But again, when the good sense, when the plain reading makes good sense, don't seek any other sense or you'll come up with nonsense. And so we believe in what's called a historical, biblical, literal, grammatical, plain interpretation. We recognize that there are figures of speech. When uh, the Revelation describes Satan in a chapter we were just in, Revelation 9, is a great red dragon, uh, we don't assume, well, that's just a symbol and there's no such thing as the devil. No, he's describing the nature of the devil. Uh, The devil is defined as the dragon. And great speaks of his power. Red speaks of his deadly reign. He's the author uh, of death and murder. The the thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to murder. But once you interpret a figure, then you believe it literally. So we don't deny figures of speech, but unless there's a reason not to take something as a figure of speech. In other words, typically when you read a figure of speech, if you were to literally interpret it, it would be nonsense. Um, For instance, I was just on a national radio show and the guy asked me to illustrate and I said, well... I had just been reading about how the Lord had delivered Israel out on angels' wings, uh, on eagles' wings. Uh, did he physically deliver Israel on the wings of e- uh, uh, on the wings of eagles out of Egypt? No. Uh, he's speaking with the great power in which he delivered them. And so, when there's a figure of speech, it's usually pretty clear that that's what is involved. The trees clap their hands for joy. Uh, That's what we call an anthropomorphism, where God attributes to, say, an object, in this case a tree, human attributes to communicate a biblical truth. So, again, the pre-tribulational rapture is built on so many passages of Scripture. And so, if we go up at the end of the tribulation, and we all come down uh, to reign with Christ on the earth for a thousand years, and so post-tribulationalism... How do you have people rebelling at the end of the thousand years? Well, unless you spiritualize it and you write it away, which you can't do if you're going to be consistent in your means of interpreting Scripture. And God contained within the Scripture how to interpret Scripture. And so again, when he's speaking of this coming period of wrath, there are different expressions of wrath. There is the cataclysmic wrath that we think of, say, in Noah's day or in Lot's day, 
there is the wrath of God that is being revealed in our day, Romans 1, when a nation, when a people, when a world turns its back on God, God gives them over to their depravity. And that's what we're witnessing in America. We are being judged. We are under the wrath of God. Read Romans 1. The pattern perfectly fits what's happening in America. But then there is tribulational wrath, and then there is eternal wrath. And so when he's speaking of tribulational wrath, the, the Paul reminds us God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. Uh, Jesus um, speaks of seven churches when he writes to uh, seven churches in the Revelation. The, the book of Revelation is given a divine outline in Revelation 119. Write about the things which you've seen. That's Revelation 1. The things which are, that's Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And then he goes on and he speaks about the things that are yet to come. That's Revelation 4 through 19. And so, again, you know, when you when you think about the book of Revelation, God gave us this clear outline as to how we should understand it. And so he says this, um, you know, he speaks to all these different churches and what they need to do. True churches are not rebuked. Only two churches, uh, five churches are, are rebuked. Two churches are not. They're commended. But with each church that is rebuked, he gives some clear guidance as to what they need to do. So when he speaks to the church at Philadelphia, he says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. In other words, they're displaying that they're not phony Christians, but real Christians. The perseverance of the saints was a great um, doctrine that was emphasized during the time of the Reformation. It doesn't simply mean eternal security, though that's implied in it. What it means is that if someone has been eternally secured by God, sealed with the Spirit for the day of redemption, is that he will persevere. That's why Jesus can say in the Olivet Discourse, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Why? Because a true believer will not renounce Christ, will not take the mark of the beast, will not give um, worship to the Antichrist. He'll pursue the Lord even at the cost of his own life. And so because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour, which is going to come, he says, upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And so earth dwellers, literally. Uh, And as you read 4 through 19, they come up time and time again. These are people living during the tribulation who are in unbelief. And so there's an hour coming that's going to come on the whole earth. Has there ever been a time in all of recorded human history, we only have 6,000 years of recorded history, which again is a good argument for a young earth because the earth is not billions of years old. It's about 6,000 years old. With that said, there's never been an event in all of recorded human history where there's been a time of testing on the whole world. Even the Second World War didn't encompass all the countries of the world, a limited number. And so there's coming a future time of testing, and God says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing. It's an interesting preposition. It's ek. It's not the preposition in, E-N, transliterated in Greek, meaning God's going to keep you in this. He's going to protect you through it. He doesn't use the word dear through the hour of testing. He uses the word out of, out of the hour of testing. Why? Because God has not destined us for wrath, uh, but for salvation. Uh, Listen to my God's prophetic schedule series. I think it would be helpful to you 
and you'll be able to put a lot of these things together. All right, let's go. And by the way, if this caller who just called, I think, from Savannah, uh, doesn't have the Search the Scriptures app, go to the App Store, type in searchthescriptures.org. You'll be able to download it into your phone. When you get to it, type in God's prophetic schedule, and you can listen to those messages as you're driving down the road, changing diapers, whatever you do. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. We're going to go back to the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe okay. we have that original caller. Good morning, caller. You're live with Pastor Carl. Um, hi, my name is Latkin, and I have a question for you today. Yes, go ahead. Okay, my question is, um, did Jesus learn things when he came to Earth? I mean, like, in... In my youth group, my pastor, my youth pastor was saying that Jesus learned things when he came to earth. So is that true? It is true. So I hope you're in a good Bible-believing church. I remember your question, Latin, that you asked a few weeks ago uh, about how was it that dinosaurs um, walked on the earth before Adam did, and I answered you. The question was they did not that dinosaurs and man was created on the same day. There are so-called Christians, they are in gross error, doing a great disservice to the body of Christ if they're converted, uh, who teach what's called theistic evolution, that is that God used evolution to create the world. The problem with that is you have death before sin. And the scripture is clear, there's no death anywhere in all the universe until sin comes. That's Romans 8. Uh, Death comes into the world through sin. It's the, um, it, it brings about death in the world. So yes, Jesus uh, learned, and there are a couple of key passages that affirm this. Remember, he took on our humanity. He was a real human. Uh, we don't always, you know, sometimes when we see these ancient uh, pieces of uh, art, and they've got like this uh, halo around Jesus's head, he didn't have any halo. Um, he was just a real human like you and I, but he was more than human. The Spirit of God overshadowed the womb of the Virgin Mary and brought about a supernatural conception. It was in fulfillment of a prophecy Isaiah made that a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and the son's name is going to be called Emmanuel. El is one of the Hebrew words for God, Elohim, El Shaddai, and so forth. Emmanuel. Uh, means literally God with us. And if you didn't know Hebrew, you could figure that out because Matthew interprets it in the New Testament. So God would literally, physically, actually be with us. So he's fully human and he's fully divine. He's not all God and no man. He's not half God and half man. He's not all man and no God. He's the God man. And the humanity of Jesus, he grew up. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to talk. And Mary was there. She didn't put him in some daycare center. She trained him. She nurtured him. She was carrying out her God-given responsibility. In the scripture, for instance, in Luke chapter 2 and in verse 52, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So he grew. He grew physically. He grew in his discernment and understanding of the scripture. Was he omniscient? Yes, he, he didn't jettison He didn't jettison his eternal attributes. And if you want to hear a whole sermon just on this, you might want to uh, go to the Search the Scriptures app and 
in uh, download the book of Philippians, and I preach quite a number of messages on the book of Philippians. And of course, in Philippians 2, it says, uh, don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. The word emptied there is the Greek word kenosis. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being laid in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. So when we speak of the kenosis, Christ emptying himself, he did not empty himself of his deity. He emptied himself of the free exercise of his divine attributes. And so what did he choose to do? He chose to live in dependence upon the Spirit of God. And so he humbled himself in that way. And of course, because of that, there's coming a day when God will honor him and give him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus. Every tongue will confess. Everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Um, you might also just want to listen to the book of Hebrews because I deal with the subject in Hebrews as well. So this is a good question. So yes, Jesus learned. He had to learn. because He had to learn how to talk. He ha- had to learn how to speak. He certainly knew Aramaic. It appears he knew Hebrew because when he um, goes into um, the temple, uh, not the temple, but the synagogue in Nazareth, he is given a scroll, and the scroll would not have been in Aramaic, but in Hebrew, and he read it. Uh, And I have no doubt to think that he knew Greek as well. Paul knew three languages. Why couldn't Jesus? And so Jesus learned. He grew in stature with God and with man. He learned obedience, the writer to the Hebrews says, and so, again, that's, that's important. Uh, he did learn. So your pastor is right, and I hope your pastor is right also on uh, this whole issue of evolution, because for you to ask that question, if I remember you were 11 years old, I thought you should have heard a sermon by that by now. Hopefully, maybe you just weren't there or you're new to the faith. And, but I had also suggested that you go to Answers in Genesis, where you'll find some excellent materials on it that whole subject. Okay, good question. Let's go to the next one from Kentucky. Yes, sir. We're going to stay with the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have Keith from Kentucky. Good morning, Keith. You're live with Pastor Carl. Good morning, uh, Dr. Brogy. I appreciate you taking my call. It's always, it's an honor for me to be able to speak with you. I listen to you pretty much daily. My wife, we study. She's usually in one book and I'm in another. My question for you today is, there's all these apostate churches that's across the United States that seem to be growing and growing and use different prosperity gospel and name it and claim it and uh, these all these false gospels. Do you have any idea, um, or maybe what in your own mind, what you would think percentages of of these things are? These churches are in, within the uh, Christian under claiming Christianity? No, it's a good question. Um, Let me just speak. Here we are in South Carolina. You're in Kentucky. You're in the region of the country that's still considered the Bible Belt. So, for instance, in our county, if I remember correctly, uh, Rick Forstner calculated some 310 churches. Uh, So we live in a county of a couple hundred thousand people, not super big, but uh, 
310 churches. And of course, the average church in America was 100. Now it's 65 after COVID. So they have uh, shrunk dramatically. There are churches that are going to close. 50,000 are estimated to close in the next five years, according to the Wall Street Journal. They're closing across America almost monthly. Uh, With that said, uh, of the churches in our own county, we could only identify slightly around 100 that had the gospel. So that was about a third. And we were interested because we wanted to invite Bible-believing pastors as best we were able to discern to a particular meeting that we had for for men who were born again. Um, I would say that uh, that's probably not far from where we are in America. Um, maybe a third of the churches have the gospel. Uh, certainly, uh, you go to other regions of the country in the Bible Belt. You go to other regions of the country. You go to New England, for instance. Okay, when I w- became a home missionary in 1978, I had to raise my financial support. I was in a town called Worcester, Massachusetts. We broadcast uh, throughout Massachusetts, Search the Scriptures does, and uh, we broadcast in a, a station from Worcester and another one in Boston. And um, I needed to raise my financial support. And as soon as I began, I was a member of a, a Baptist church. I won't give the name. I think it's embarrassing what they did. They were between pastors, but they said, oh, we only, we only support Baptist missions. And since you're with a uh, missionary group that is not Baptist, uh, you can't raise support here. Well, my challenge was, is there was over 300 churches in Worcester, Massachusetts, but only four had the plan of salvation. Four. Wow. What what an atmosphere. Now, fortunately, in God's grace, there's about 15, as best I know now, in Worcester, Massachusetts, where you have churches that preach the gospel, and that's good. What is changing, though, so very fast, Keith, is churches that once a decade ago were evangelical are now departing from the faith. And Paul, of course, gave a warning to us that this would happen uh, at the end of the age and that we were to, you know, like smarten up because these days are coming. And part of the reason for their coming is because uh, we've had a church paradigm that has been antithetical to Scripture. When guys like Bill Heibel who, as it turns out, was a serial adulterer, and Rick Warren, who sadly has now affirmed women to be pastors and has ordained them in his own church. I'm not saying that either of these men are, are lost, but what they did was a terrible disservice. The Purpose Driven Church was one of the worst books ever written that came into the church in America. But young pastors saw what they were doing how they started with a handful of people and they grew to 15 and 20,000 people. Oh, I want what they have. Well, you know, there was a church here in town that modeled what they did and they had about 10 people. It's a liberal Presbyterian church and they grew to like 400 folks. The pastor was lost. He opposed me when I was in a pastoral meeting and I first came to this town because we had the March of Dimes in town And I just asked the question, I said, when I was a little kid, you know, we had the March of Dimes and we would collect our dimes and give them to, for children with birth defects. I'm assuming they have an official position on abortion since they seem to love it. Children, and before the woman could even answer, this pastor stood up, how dare you, you know, kind of response, you know, you deny a woman's right 
to an abortion. Of course, that church today does homosexual marriages. So um, what I'm saying is the paradigm worked for even churches that didn't have the gospel. But churches that did have the gospel, what was the net effect? They got away from verse-by-verse expository preaching on Sunday morning. And when Paul addresses Timothy, you know, and he, he writes his last will and testament, he wants to make it crystal clear what his responsibility is as a pastor. I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Then he reminds us, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Ladies and gentlemen, those days have come. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Tim Keller taught a myth. He taught a myth. It's called theistic evolution. Um, You know, we have these people who go into churches and they're now teaching that you can have side B Christianity. You can be a transgender Christian. You can be a gay Christian. These are all oxymorons. These are contrary to scripture. These are myths. So when you have a Sam Alberry being given a platform on evangelical meetings These are like people who, like, wake up, guys. What are you doing? He says in his first letter to Timothy, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, the term latter times is slightly different from last days, and that we've been in the last days since Christ was on the earth and since Pentecost. And so Peter stands up and he says, the miracle you're witnessing is what God said would happen in the last days. But the term latter days would be more like the last of the last days. In latter times, some will fall away from the faith. It's articular, not from faith, but the faith. That is the body of truth we call the Bible. And they'll pay attention to deceitful spirits and to doctrines of demons. That's the day we live in. People are embracing demonic doctrines. And now it's entered into the evangelical church. So I think of like First Baptist Church, Orlando. That was a great church a decade ago. They preached the gospel on Sunday morning. Now they've got all kinds of wickedness unfolding on Sunday morning, all kinds of evil things that are happening. And so there are churches like that across America that now are embracing embracing false doctrine and evil, and that's the day that we're living in. And, And so, you know, there are a number of telltale signs that we're at the end of time The biggest super sign is the regathering of Israel. God would constitute them, reconstitute them as a nation. And that happened on May the 14th, 1948. And God said, could uh, a people become a nation in a day? And he's speaking of Israel, and the answer is yes. And because they had not been a nation for 1,900 years, sadly, some evangelicals did what Pentecostals do. They were embracing experiential theology. Well, we look around, Israel's been scattered for nearly 2,000 years. Obviously, this is not what God meant. And so they embraced basically the theology of the Reformers who came out of Roman Catholicism that the church had replaced Israel. No, God said, and Moses uses the term latter terms and last days because you you could translate it either way, but he uses a Hebrew term that refers to the end of time before Messiah returns on the earth. 
And in that time frame, God said he would not only make them a nation, but regather them. There are now more Jews living in Israel in that one country alone than 200 plus countries combined across the planet. Why? Because God has regathered. He won't regather 100% of them, but he'll regather enough to unfold the final prophetic schedule. So with the regathering of Israel, with the days of Noah, which were days of violence and days of sexual immorality, with the days of Lot that is also liking to the come of the Son of Man, which are the days of sexual perversion and apostasy, the falling away from the faith, unless you're blind uh, and shutting your eyes to truth, then people don't realize that we're in that final time frame. How much longer? I don't know. It could be 50 years. It could be five weeks. We don't know before the rapture, but we're in that final time frame of human history. And so while the rapture is a signless event, the second coming is a prophetically driven event. And so the apostasy and the apostasy of all apostasies, Paul highlights in 2 Thessalonians 2. And that's when men will follow the Antichrist, where people, an apostate, and again, maybe that's a term I shouldn't assume people know. An apostate is someone who claims Christianity, but then they fall away from it. And that's the day we're living in. People who are departing from the label, the true label of being a Christian. And so it's happening at a rapidity that no one could ever have imagined. What percentage only God knows of true Bible-believing churches? But, you know, when you have churches that are embracing lesbianism and someone can call themselves a gay Christian, just don't act on it fully. Or or now, you know, you've got uh, Andy Stanley's church where it's okay. They got gay people on their staff as counselors. He's an apostate. He's a false teacher. Now, I said that 15 years ago, and I got all kinds of mail and hatred, and people were using his material in our county in their Bible studies, and I said, you're foolish. You're foolish to use it. I said, look, he, he's, he's shaky, and he was shaky then. He's just come out, and he's fully shaky now. He's just really shown how far he is from the truth, and now even those people recognize, I guess he was a false teacher and is a false teacher. That's the day we live in, Keith. And so we as believers need to be in the book and our pastors need to be teaching the book so that we can have discernment. All right, good question. Let's go to the next. All right, one more, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Jessica out of Arkansas. She says, I am a school teacher in the public system. We are not dealing with transgenderism yet, but we are starting to see some of this. My question is, what is my responsibility as a Christian to identify them with their gender pronoun preference? Well, look, if you are asked to call someone as a teacher, some boy who is obviously biologically a boy and he wants you to call her she, then you are basically contributing to evil. I would say you need to get out at that point. You know, is it wrong for a Christian to teach in the public school system? No, it's not. We have uh, public school teachers in our own church, some administrators, some principals. But when they are asked to violate their Christian convictions, then they need to step out. And they're in some states where what you can do and what your freedoms are are significantly limited, say, to South Carolina. But there are things that are going on in the public school system. How do I know? I hear it in my office. So people will say, well, our public school system is not good. They're blind. 
Uh, someone just identified 19 books that should be taken out of the middle school and high school libraries, but our, our county has to review them. Well, I get it. You know, you don't want to book bash things, but it's not rocket science to know that if someone's teaching transgenderism, you know, that's violating their the parents' moral code for many parents, and you don't want your kids in that kind of an atmosphere. I would say to Christians, get out. And choose another alternative, home educate, find a Christian school. But if you think you can put your kids in public school from kindergarten through high school and expect a godly product in the end where they're being brainwashed, it's just stupid. Now, there are some people who have no choice. I meet single moms, and they're teaching their children hard at night, and they can't seem to be able to have a job that allows them to home educate. They certainly can't afford the average Christian school. And sometimes, you know, God just puts a hedge of protection around those kids and they can make it. But you don't want to exercise stupid choices either. So I would just say that if you have to begin to do things that causes you to violate. Look, we we just had a request. It's been a year now. We discussed it in our staff meeting today where the public schools realize, oh, if we have an emergency over here on this side of the Broad River, there's a school shooter or something. We have no place to put these kids, a safe place. So we had all these administrators, assistant principals, police officers who came and asked uh, for permission at this meeting a year ago. And I said, sure, we would love to be able to serve the community in that way with one exception. And they about fell off their seat. I said, the one exception is if some child comes in, I don't care if they're 18 or 8, and they are not willing to use the bathroom of their biological birth, they can't use it. And I'm not going to just say you can come. Uh, I need it in writing that we're going to be a safe place, but you're going to honor our policies. And it took almost a year before some of them had the moxie to finally write a letter um, that said, okay, we'll, we'll ascribe to your principles. Look, we're living in a day of evil. And it's not a matter of if, even in South Carolina, it's when, at the rate we're going. Oh, they want girls on the football team. They want girls on this team and that team. Uh, we want boys who become girls to play in girls' sport. It's going to happen. And so look for other alternatives. And if you have skill as a teacher, a lot of Christian schools could really benefit from your talent. Anyway, we're out of time, but thanks for joining us today for the Bible Line. And we'll be back here, Lord willing, next Tuesday. And if you don't have a church home, we invite you to Community Bible Church. Go to communitybiblechurch.us for details and meeting places. God bless you as you walk with Christ.